A New Testament lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 8. We're reading verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we ask for your spirit to give us understanding, to apply these great truths into our hearts and lives, that we may know what it is to be glorified with Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, my father-in-law determined that he was going to take all of his grandsons through the Grand Canyon. This is a roughly a 24-mile hike. He's approaching 70 years old, and so it was somewhat of a fitness goal for him, an educational opportunity for the kids. Last year at this time, I had the chance to being the benefactor of that determination because I also got to go with my sons. They were 9 and 10 years old at that point, and they were going to go across the Grand Canyon. It's an arduous trek for anyone, but for a 9 and 10-year-old, it's quite impressive. When we start moving down the, the trail you start noticing that there are certain um, markers, strange things that you don't quite expect. One of the first things that I noticed was a wheelbarrow. I didn't ask anything. I just thought there was a wheelbarrow. Perhaps they were fixing the trail there. I didn't know why it was particularly located there beside the trail. And then I started hearing helicopters. And I noticed for a couple of days that I heard multiple helicopters going through the canyon. It didn't seem that odd to me because I had seen a billboard that said, this ain't no donkey ride. And, uh, and it was a helicopter tour through the Grand Canyon. So if you didn't want to do it on foot and you didn't want to ride a mule, you could take a helicopter through the Grand Canyon. So I thought, well, they must be doing quite a big tourist industry with the helicopters. And so then in conversation with our guide one night, I discovered that the helicopters and the wheelbarrows were actually connected, that the wheelbarrows were for human beings and they were then cart people who weren't making it through the canyon, which is a large number of people who attempt to cross. They would take them to the helicopter stations that were preset where a helicopter would land and airlift them out. And so every time you heard a helicopter land, it was somewhat like the rifle in the Hunger Games, okay? Somebody had gone down and they were airlifted out. And so each night as the, as the journey progressed across the canyon, our guide would fix a special meal. And night one, the meal was not great. Night two, it was better. Night three was really good. Okay? And, uh, and he was giving us energy and power, so he was loading us with things called chia seeds and all kinds of other like high-protein, nutritious feed in order that we could make it. Because the further you got into the trip, you began to note that I might just not make it. My boys were offloading their material into my backpack, and I felt pretty fit and had done a lot of backpacking, but I was feeling the weight and burden of this, that were we going to make it? 
The final clincher was that they gave us Jolly Ranchers on the final day where it's so steep. It's amazing what a Jolly Rancher can do to your energy for about an hour, okay? Um, And so that just pushed us right over the top. But when we think about the Christian life, it's appropriate to think about it in the same way as a journey, and that we all face the question, am I going to make it? Paul here in Romans 8 actually draws a parallel between Israel's journey through the Red Sea and then out of Egypt into the desert. And he does so through the announcement that the Spirit of God is leading us. And this is why we read from Psalm 105, because the Spirit of God led Israel. It was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. God was leading the people on a journey to the promised land. And so Paul uses that as an example of saying this is what the Christian life is now like. And all of us face the question, are we going to make it? Because honestly, we have temptations, we have sufferings, we have disappointments. We all have things that we face in this life, and it leads us to that question, am I going to make it? Do I have what it takes to sustain this to the end? And so the question for us this morning is, what does it require for us to persevere to the end? It's what Paul speaks of in verse 17 when he says that we be glorified with him that we be raised anew with Jesus and be put in a physical body in His likeness, that we be raised to live in God's new world. So what does it require for us to persevere? And there's four things that we'll see in Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. Our first is this, is that our perseverance requires divine empowerment. You can't do this yourself. Paul in verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And that if we are to make the journey, we have to be led by the Spirit of God. As the Spirit, the the pillar of fire by night, the the pillar of cloud by, by day that led Israel out of Egypt, so God must lead us. And that Spirit must be residing in us, divinely empowering us for a particular calling and task. Now, it's important for us to understand, what does he mean to be led by the Spirit? When I was first out of college, I worked as a college minister at Presbyterian College, and so I spent my days talking to young college students about their relationship with Jesus. And there was one particular guy who I was friends with who had a lot of questions. He had grown up in church, but then he had departed from that track and was pursuing a different lifestyle. And so he was questioning me, asking, Chuck, how do I know whether I'm really a Christian or not? And so I was giving him some diagnostic questions in a conversation one day just to help him discern where his own heart was. And then he shut down the conversation at the, at the, and brought it to an abrupt end. And he said, well, you know what? I know I'm a Christian because I'm led by the Spirit of God. The conversation was done. I couldn't say anything else. Because he was sure, existentially, he had a feeling that he was led by the Spirit of God. It was important because at that time I was also studying the book of Romans. Studying with another group of guys, we were walking through kind of in a verse-by-verse analysis of this awesome book, all 16 chapters, and I came across verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I said, oh, well my friend was quoting this verse when he said he was led by the Spirit of God. And so he was sure that he was a son of God. 
But then I looked at the broader context as to what it meant to be led by the Spirit. Notice that verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That this is what it meant to be led by the Spirit of God. That Paul was not here talking about an existential feeling. He was talking about an objective fact. Something that's worked out in our lives. That the Spirit of God is at work in us putting certain behaviors down and bringing certain behaviors to life. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. And so many people ask at that point, well, how does it work? If Paul can say that unless you put to death the deeds of the body, you will not live. Many people ask, well, what what happened to salvation by grace? What is he saying here? He seems to be saying that unless you do something, you will not live. You will not make it to your inheritance. And so it's really important for us to clarify this relationship. Paul is not somehow becoming a Pharisee and sneaking works into the picture that you have to earn and gain your way there. No, Paul, along with the Reformers, have been really clear about this, that salvation is always by faith, that faith alone saves. But then we've also always said that the faith that saves is never alone. That the Spirit gives us faith. It puts the confession of Abba Father, Jesus is Lord, upon our lips. And the Spirit is then also going to bear itself out in our lives in an active testimony that puts to death the old way of life that was in rebellion against God. And so in no way is it earning anything. But rather what Paul is saying is is pretty clear. He says in verse 12 that we are not debtors to the flesh. Because we are now in the Spirit. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He says you are no longer in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. And so you don't live controlled by the flesh, the old man under the captivity and power of sin. You now live dealing with the influence of sin, but no longer under its control. And now by the Spirit, you have the capacity to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And so we call this the statement in theological terms of the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is simply what God has done on your behalf. And the imperative is now the command that God gives you in light of what He has done for you. You are in the Spirit. Now keep in step with the Spirit. And the Spirit enables you by the grace of God to put to death the deeds of the body. This is how Paul pleads with this congregation that he deals with in Rome. Now there's many similar dynamics that work themselves out in our lives. As a young pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, shortly after my my first ordination, (laughs) I remember just encountering a bewildering number of pastoral circumstances that were simply over my head. Okay? I had no clue what to deal, uh, how to deal with any of it. I was sitting in my office one day, received a phone call. There's someone that needs to see you. There she was in front of me, and my jaws hitting the floor as she describes her problem. I didn't know what to do or what to say. I was too green. And then it was almost inside of the same week or two that I had several other huge, massive pastoral circumstances that I had completely no idea what to say drop on me. 
I remember going to my mentor, Sandy Wilson, and just saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't feel qualified for my job, something I used to feel confident that I was going to be good at. And I feel like a stammering child in front of these things. What do I do? And he said, well, Chuck, you know, when you first start in ministry and you're ordained, it does feel like you're wearing your dad's clothes. <laughs> Feels like you got his shoes on and his shirt on. Here you have this authority and all this stuff, and everybody thinks you're going to know what you're talking about, and you got no clue what's happening. And he said, Chuck, you're a pastor, though, so be a pastor. Don't live in light of your fear of what you don't know. Just care for the people. And he was, calling us to the, he was calling me to the same dynamic that God calls us to in the Christian life. That there's a statement made about you that you are in the Spirit. So keep in step with the Spirit. This is what God has done to you in His grace. He has taken you out of the flesh, put you in the Spirit, raised you to new life with Jesus as we saw in verse 11 last week. And so now we are to walk in keeping with that. And that means that we're dealing with sin and we're under its influence, but we're not just stricken and under its power and control unhelp, uh, without help. And so this is how Paul pleads with us, is that we keep in step with the Spirit because we are in the Spirit. And friends, our perseverance in the Christian life requires this divine empowerment, this gracious gift, this dynamic of God at work in us. And if we're to make it to the end, we're reliant upon the grace of God sustaining us by the Spirit. And so this is the first thing that we need in order to persevere. Now the second is that our perseverance requires remembrance, that we have to be a community of reflection. If you follow in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul suddenly shifts to the past tense. And he says, you didn't receive a spirit of fear. You received from God a spirit of adoption as sons. And so he's appealing to us to remember what God has done on our behalf. The problem is that like Israel, we tend to cross through the Red Sea where we see the faithfulness of God in saving us through Jesus, rescuing us from our sins, forgiving us, putting us in right relationship with himself, and then we forget. He gave Israel water from the rock. He gave them manna from heaven, and they still grumbled. And we too tend to work like this. And what Paul is calling us to here is to remember. To remember to reflect on God's deeds, what He has done for us, His wonderful works on our behalf through Jesus. That He has brought us through the Red Sea, baptizing us into Christ. And now He leads and guides us through the desert. That we are to actively remember and to reflect. And the challenge for us is to cultivate that remembrance to actively cultivate it, that our minds would be constantly churning on what God has done for us in Christ and all of that frees us for what it means to have this spirit of adoption as sons that we have received, that has been done on our behalf. Jack Miller, some of you may be familiar with him, he died uh, roughly 20 years ago, but he was the founder of World Harvest Mission that is now known as Surge. 
And Jack became famous for using a very simple line and a simple concept. He says, you must preach the gospel to yourself. And so he would go around telling Christians that they don't need to just focus on what they are to do. That's to focus on the imperative. That you must remember the indicative, what God has done on your behalf that empowers what you are to do. And Jack always held those two things together quite well. But he would remind people, preach the gospel to yourself. And that is what Paul is doing here. He's reminding us not to fall back into fear because we don't have a spirit of slavery, that we now have a spirit of sonship. He's reminding us of all that God has done. And so we must actively find the ways to preach the gospel, the good news of God's grace, all the gifts that God gives us in Jesus. We must find ways to nurture that and encourage it. Personally, for me, one of the ways that I've found to work this out is to simply go through a rhythm, a daily rhythm of confession. Because it's on the other side of confession that I then read the assurances of God's pardon of my sins. And this is what we're offering to you in the daily prayer liturgy that we put out in the lobby as a selfless promotion. But it is a daily rhythm that brings you into contact with the reality of the gospel in your life. That you have sinned and fallen short of God. That you have sinned against Him and sinned against your neighbor. That you've messed up. That your sins are deep. But that God's love is deeper still. And friends, if you're to make it and not be undone by your own shame and your own guilt, you have to remember actively cultivating this remembrance that we have the spirit of adoption as sons, that we cry out, Abba, Father, because we've been reconciled to God through Jesus. And so please find the ways to actively cultivate that. Your perseverance requires it. Third thing that our perseverance requires is ongoing affirmation. Verse 16 the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, a moment ago, I talked about the objective work of the Spirit in putting to death the deeds of the body. Paul shifts gears here and he moves to the subjective. That the Spirit of God subjectively is at work in us also to affirm us that we really are His children. That is part of the work of the Spirit, that it does work outward in us, but it also works inward to bring us into the reality, to hear God's voice, that we know that truly we are the sons and daughters of God. It's important to explain that dynamic and how it exactly works. In verse 17, Paul gets into it. He says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And this is the entire dynamic of the gospel explained here, that we are children and heirs of God because we are sons and daughters sharing in the sonship of Jesus. That Jesus is the Son who was right with God, who suffered our death on our behalf. That He takes it on, and now that we are united to Him, and we've risen to new life in Him, been granted a new status, reconciled to God, and so our communion with the Father is the communion the Son shares with Him. And so everything we have from God is a gift. It is graciously given to us. And the Spirit is giving us ongoing affirmation in our heart, down in the internal workings of who we are. 
that we belong to God the Father through the Son, sharing in the Son's communion. As a kid, I grew up with a dad who was famous in the area, the small area of North Carolina I lived. My dad was a well-known football player. He was an All-American. He had done well, and as a kid, I was a scrawny runt who didn't look anything like his dad. I took after my mother's side of the family. I was more on the brainy side and not necessarily on the athletic side. And so when I would walk around town, I would frequently hear, oh, your dad is Butch Colson. I'd say yes, and then they would say this little refrain, he was good for five yards anytime. I could almost fill it in. Here it comes. You know, and then if we were at church, it was going to be the Chuck Colson jokes. And it was just like, this was my life on repeat. It's like Groundhog Day. He's good for five yards anytime. And so at no fault of my dad's, but an internal conversation started in me about whether my life was pleasing and whether my dad approved of me as his son. And I really struggled with that. I was a late bloomer. I was 6'1", 150 when I went to college. I was not playing fullback. (laughs) I felt kind of pathetic. I didn't quite know who I was. I go through college and begin to sense that God was placing a call to ministry in my life. And so I was telling my dad about that. I was making the decision to go to seminary. I was 24 years old. And I was telling my dad over the phone. And he said, son, I want you to know how proud I am of you. I am fully supportive of this. And I think you're going to be so good at it. And I'm going to give all of my support to you to get through that experience, to see you serve the church. And guys, those words were like manna. You know, all those years of struggling and laboring for my dad's approval, even though I didn't have to, I had it. It was just this internal conversation going on. But then my dad putting that stamp that day at 24 years old, that he was proud of me, that he approved. He was affirming me in perhaps the strongest ways that a dad could to a son. And then at certain key moments since then, he's done the same. I'm proud of you. You're doing what's right. And friends, this is what the Spirit does for us. If it's this important in our own interpersonal relationships, inside of families and with friends and in the church to have affirmation and approval, how much more so is it important in our relationship with God? And this is what the Spirit does. As the Spirit testified at the baptism of Jesus, you are my son. So we hear those same words. You are my son. You are my daughter adopted in Jesus. We draft off of his social capital with God. And everything that he has is now ours. And we share in his communion with the Father. And so we are constantly receiving that affirmation from the Spirit. And friends, to make it, to make it out the other side of the canyon, the journey that we are on as Christians, engaged with the battle against sin, facing death, we have to have this type of affirmation at work in our lives. Fourth and final thing that our perseverance requires is a new perspective. That we have to have something that reorients our perspective in this life because our journey is difficult. 
We find this in verse 17 where Paul alludes to it. He says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and it would be so convenient if there was a period there, comma, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also be glorified with Him. That part of the Son's inheritance in the present is that we join in His sufferings. That we experience the brokenness of our world. And so we experience this in temptations and trials. We experience in weakness. We experience in hardships. Sometimes in persecutions. Bodily ailments. Sicknesses. And finally in death. That we are called to suffer with Jesus in all the brokenness and fracture of our world under the power of sin. But the thing is, is that it's suffering that leads us into discouragement and despair. People sometimes ask, what is it that leads people away from a true living and lively faith? And they think that it's the atheist and their books It's never been the case. The most difficult thing for people who are Christians, who are wondering if they're not going to make it or not, is typically their sufferings. And they're asking questions of God and why things have to happen the way they do. And what Paul offers to us here is a new perspective on our sufferings. Rather than those sufferings driving us away from God, pulling us from Him, that our sufferings are to affirm us that we truly are in the Son. That if we suffer, that if we find the hardships and burdens of the life to be extremely heavy, then that means we're on the right path. We're identifying with Jesus who bore all of that on Himself. And then He was raised to new life. And so we're affirmed that as we share in His sufferings, we'll also share in His glory. And so Paul wants to rework everything that we think about suffering. Sometimes we think suffering drives us away from God. We think that we've done something wrong. And Paul is saying, no, completely the opposite. That your sufferings are part of your approval. Your sufferings demonstrate that you are a son, that you are a daughter. We suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Friends, you don't need an airlift and you don't need a wheelbarrow. You don't need to be rescued because God gives you the manna. He gives you the water from the rock. He gives you everything you could possibly need for the journey. It is filled with grace at every step of the way. His grace is what allows us to persevere. It provides the ongoing affirmation we need to sometimes put one foot in front of the other, day in and day out, through the mundane task of serving Him. It requires the grace that we need for a new perspective about how to interpret our sufferings and our difficulties in life. It provides grace that empowers us to struggle against sin, to see small measures of victory, when we put sins to death, the deeds of our body, when we put them away, it provides a grace that draws us into remembrance of all that God has done for us. That we are now sons crying out, Abba, Father. We've been reconciled to Him, adopted, brought into the family. God's grace surrounds you across your Christian pilgrimage. It ensures 
your perseverance, that you will make it. And if you ever ask the question, am I going to make it? Do I have what it takes? Don't look inside yourselves. Look to Jesus. Look to God the Father. Look to the communion of the Spirit that you have. And you find all the resources you need. You will not make it. You, in union with Jesus by the power of the Spirit, make it. That's the assurance Paul gives us. And so let's look to him. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for grace. Grace that reorients us in this life, that gives us strength in which we find wells of resources to persevere in this journey across the desert. Lord, we're thankful for Jesus, all the grace that he has bought for us and for the spirit that empowers us and leads us. Lord, we pray that your grace will be multiplied for us. We need your help. May we learn to depend upon you, hanging upon you in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.